Well, throughout the book of Samuel, we read about the lives of people, of Hannah, of Samuel, Eli, his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, Saul, Jonathan, David, so many between all of those. We read about them, but the focus of their lives, and this is very important for us to remember, the focus of their lives and what we are told about their lives, as is with all the Scripture, is God. It's not us. It's not them. It's not even the situation. It's not the center of what we are told in the book of Samuel or throughout all of Scripture. The focus is of God himself. Hannah shows us that God saves those who know him and are faithful to him. Eli and his sons reveal that rejecting and blaspheming the words of the Lord leads to death. Samuel reveals that listening and submitting to the words of the Lord leads to life. And Israel, as we saw last week, reveals that God cannot be manipulated into fulfilling our own desires because God is not a genie who we can call upon in order to fulfill our greatest desires. That's not how God works. And today is no different. The Philistines learn about the sovereign power and authority of Yahweh, of the Lord, of God, the God of Israel. For God to be sovereign means that he causes and allows all things in the world to happen. God's power and his authority means that he is the mighty king who is over all of creation, including the Philistine people. So to be a sovereign power and sovereign authority means he not only created and has control over all things, but he guides all things. And he has power over all things. And what does all mean? All not 95%, not 99%, 100% of everything that happens in the world is un- under God's sovereign power and authority, including his enemies. 1 Samuel 5 speaks of God's judgment, not only upon idols, Dagon in this instance, but also for those who worship those idols and reveals the character of God which affects our lives today. Whether you believe that there's a God or there is not does not change the fact that he is still sovereign and still has power and still has authority over your life. And so, in their attempt to manipulate God, the Philistines, or Israel, is defeated by the Philistines, and the Ark of the Covenant is taken. God's throne here on earth is taken by the Philistines, the hated enemies of the Israelites. And the Philistines do to the ark what they would do with any other idol captured in battle. For them, the ark is just an image of God, uh, of the God of Israel, which strangely enough was how Israel treated the ark too. They just said, oh, well, we lost, so that means we got to go get God and his image and bring it into our camp and everything's going to be fine. And it didn't turn out well for them. For them, the Philistines, the ark is the image of the God of Israel, the same God who struck down the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness, as chapter 4, verse 8 says. 
They know who this God is. Well, they know of him, maybe I should say. And they are understandably on a high at this point, thoroughly convinced that they did what the Egyptians could not. They defeated Yahweh. We did it. Yes. And so they set up the ark next to Dagon, their god of fertility, their god of life, as a symbol of Dagon's power over this Yahweh. But the next morning, Dagon is face down before the ground, uh, on the ground, bowing before the ark. So, like every great god, they had to pick him up and put him back in place. But the next morning, he wasn't only bowing before the ark, but his head and his hands were cut off. All that was left was just his trunk, just his body. Now, the Philistines thought that Dagon had given them the victory of the battle over the Israelites, but these two incidents reveal who has the real power in this world. Dagon is put in his proper place, in the position of worship before the one and only God, Yahweh. One incident would have been strange, like, okay, well, maybe Dagon was a little off balance, he just fell, and so they put him back up. But to drive the point home, which maybe I should add here, It wasn't a breeze. It wasn't a priest. It was God who made Dagon fall before the ark. To drive the point home, Yahweh removes Dagon's head and his hands. A common practice for victorious armies against their enemies to show the power and the might of the victors and then the now inability and the weakness of the enemy, of the defeated army. For who can, uh, how can an enemy attack if they don't have any hands or heads, right? Yeah, I've got a giant army with no head and no hands. You can't hold a sword and you're dead. So what is he saying about Dagon is Dagon is dead. He's a dead god. It's a gruesome display of God's power and his control. And this is what Yahweh does to Dagon. Like the gods of the Egyptians, the god of the Philistines was shown to be inept. Nothing but a block of stone or wood or clay. He's a dead god with no power. But Yahweh, through his sovereign power and authority, brought his heavy hand of judgment upon Dagon. But God doesn't only judge idols. He judges those who worship those idols. That's the second half of 1 Samuel chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, grab them. If you have your apps, grab them. I'm going to read from verse 6 to the end. So this is after Dagon. He's he's headless, he's handless, he's dead. Verse 6, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. That's the name of the city where, where Dagon was. And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory, And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain for us, with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. They still don't get it, right? But they recognize that God is over Dagon. So they sent and gathered together all of the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath, because that's going to change things, right? And so they brought the ark of God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, 
the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent, they sent the ark of God to Ekron. I don't know, I, I, maybe I just find this kind of funny. Like, they just keep moving it around, killing their own people, basically, in doing this. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron, but as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around to us the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. So they're recognizing this is a big deal. Why are you doing this? You just want us dead? They therefore, they sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Four times in this section, the hand of the Lord, quote unquote, is stated. And if something in Scripture is repeated often enough in a, in a section, it's probably what? Important. If you see something repeated over and over again in a very short period of time, you go, okay, what does that mean? What does it mean? Uh, what is the hand of the Lord? In Psalm 32, verse 4, it says, for, the day and, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. So there's some sort of power in the hand of God, and using that phrase, speaking of judgment upon someone. Or Paul, in speaking to a false prophet, says this, And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, that is, the false prophet, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. A heavy hand is using authority to bring judgment, punishment, discipline upon those that are under that authority. So if God is sovereign in power and authority, who is under him? Everyone. Everyone is under his hand. And in this case, a very negative hand, a very heavy hand. The Lord used tumors and death to display his heavy hand of judgment to the people. Many suffered and some were killed, but why would the Lord do such a thing? Why, why would Yahweh decide to reveal himself this way? Isn't he a merciful and loving God? But this judgment upon the Philistines has actually less to do about mercy and love and more about his holiness his power, his authority, and his sovereignty over all things. You see, you see in the, the central focus of this, it's not the Philistines. It's not the Israelites. It's not even death. It's not the ark. It's God. God judged the Israelites because they had reduced their relationship with God to being a mere genie who grants wishes. And so God used the unbelieving pagan Philistines as his means of judgment upon his own people. You can fast forward this to the exile. Jerusalem and Israel have turned away from God, and so he brings the Babylonians in and the Persians in and all these other strong nations and brings them out of Israel 
into exile. He does it over and over again in Scripture. Meanwhile, the Philistines that think that their power and their might is what won the day, but God is showing them that it was He who allowed them to win the day. And in their confidence and arrogance, it was revealed that the real power resides in Yahweh, the only God who is over all things, not Dagon, not the Philistines, not Israel, not the ark. The city of Ashdod realizes that it's the presence of the ark which is causing all this pain and suffering, the presence of God himself, and so they send it to Gath. But the hand of the Lord is heavy on that city, and panic and tumors fill the streets, and so they send the ark to Ekron, and immediately deathly panic fills the whole city. The reputation of God has already gone out to the Philistines. Strangely enough, instead of repenting and going, oh my goodness, this is a powerful God, even over our God, Dagon, we need to worship him. They go, uh, to get him out of here. We want nothing to do with him. But it was too late for those cities. And those who didn't die were struck with tumors. And it says in verse 12, which is an interesting phrase, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. And it was heard by the ears of Yahweh. Generation after generation of Israelites would hear the words of 1 Samuel chapter 5. And they would learn the answer to the question, who is Yahweh? Who is the Lord? And it's no different for us today. This chapter teaches us of the character of God, and it challenges us to rethink how we view and understand the reality of God's character in and his power and his sovereign authority over our lives. Because he is a living God. He is the only true God. He is powerful. He is sovereign. And he is the God who saves. So what does it mean that he is a living God? Well, unlike Dagon and unlike all of our other idols that we have, whether it's political or social or sports or family or friends, money, job, all those things, whatever we may bow down to, or even going to church thinking that this is, this is my act right now. This is the God that I am worshiping. They're all dead in the sense that they are powerless. Unlike Dagon, Unlike all of these idols that we worship today, the Lord is not made of wood, stone, or clay. He is a living God. Israel had forgotten this when they treated the Ark of the Covenant as an idol. They thought that simply bringing this beautiful box into camp would win the battle, but God can't be put in a box. They had forgotten that He is alive beyond the Ark of the Covenant. They had treated him as the Philistines treated Dagon. And later in Israel's history, God re would remind his people through the prophet Jeremiah that where the idols of the nations are dead, the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, and he is the everlasting God. Unlike Dagon, unlike our idols today, he gives life because he's alive. He is active. He is moving in our life 
today. He gives and he takes away life at his will because he is a living God. And he is the only true God. Way back during the Exodus, God tells his people, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And why are they to only worship the Lord? It's because he's the only true God. There is no other God. It's not like he's saying, well, there's all of this, this pantheon of all these gods, but I'm number one out of all of those. No, he's saying, out of all of this pantheon of gods, they're all dead. And there's only one, me. I'm alive, and I'm the only true God. They're all fakes. And they're fakes that do nothing The plagues against Egypt revealed the inept power of the Egyptian gods against him. Every single plague cut down at the the knees the gods of Egypt. And now in 1 Samuel, Israel is once again shown that it wasn't the Philistines or Dagon who defeated him. It was their one and only true God. I mean, think about that. The God that they supposedly worshipped brought his judgment and punishment upon them. Idols cannot stand up to the Lord because they're not gods. They are created by the hands of human beings and nothing more. But God was not created. He is the creator, the only true God, and there is none like him. So he's living He is the only true God, but he is powerful and sovereign. This is where the proverbial broken record comes in, right? He's powerful. He's mighty. He is sovereign over all things. If there's anything that we need to hear over and over and over again, it is that God is powerful and sovereign because we tend to lose sight of that. Turn on the news, and it's easy for us to get lost and forget Who's really in charge? Look at the situations of our life and we can forget that God is sovereign and powerful. He defeated both the Israelites and the Philistines while at the same time defeating the false god Dagon. Pharaoh and the Egyptians and his God stood no chance against the Lord. When he decided it was time for his judgment to come, it came. It was not delayed. It came exactly when he wanted it, how he wanted it. He does as he pleases, and it is all for the good of his glory, not our glory. Israel was getting no glory in this story. Philistines are getting no glory. They're dying. But yet, who's the center of it? Yahweh is the center of this story. He does as he pleases. He does it for his glory. He reveals his power and sovereignty over all of creation. And for us today, including you and me, through this story, through our lives, through the things that are happening in history around us right at this moment, is pointing us as his people to the power and sovereignty of God. It would not happen if God did not choose and cause it to happen. It would not. And as his people, 
as with Israel, what they should have done is, God, it's in your hands. You are not inept against what's going on in my life. You are not powerless against what's happening in the world. I don't like it. I don't understand why it's happening. I don't know the deep rootedness of it's obviously sin, but why? How is this bringing you glory? I don't know. And as his people, we stand back and we say, but you're powerful and you're sovereign. That is who you are. And so I can stand and rest as chaos in my life, in my heart, in my mind, and the world around me is just overwhelming me. I stand firm on the fact that my God is living. He's the only God, and he is powerful and sovereign. And no nation on earth can stand against him and say, we have defeated Yahweh. As God's people, in a sense, we should laugh. We say, let me know how that works out for you. Because it won't. And it didn't work out for Israel. It didn't work out for the Philistines. It didn't work out for the Egyptians. It didn't work out for the Persians. It didn't work out for the Babylonians. It didn't work out for the Romans. And it's not going to work out for us. He is sovereign and powerful, and we could stand on that truth as his people. But all of this, too, I think, kind of leads us in this direction of God's salvation. Israel's defeat the plague-ridden Philistines, the humiliation of Dagon, all should have pointed Israel to God's desire to save his people. He desired a right relationship with them, but the rebellion against them, him brought their, his judgment upon them. Everything in this chapter, everything in the book of Samuel, everything in this book from beginning to end, everything, should point the people of God to realize that his judgment is, dr is to drive us to his salvation. Not to wallow in our misery, not to become overwhelmed by things of this world, but to drive us to him and his salvation. Yes, his judgment reveals our rebellion, but it's through that judgment that our need for salvation is exposed. The reality of our relationship has just ripped open. As the New Testament says, I believe it's in the book of John, the light reveals the darkness and the darkness flees from it because Jesus, the light, reveals our sin. Anybody like having their sin revealed? No, I don't. Maybe you're sick in that kind of way. I don't know. I'm not that way. I'm assuming you're not that way. The darkness runs away from it. But we also know as God's people, when the light comes and it exposes our darkness and the sin in our life, it drives us to the salvation that is found in God. So it is with everything around us. When we look at, when we watch the news, when we talk to people who are suffering, who are hurting, we can hear the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones he was alive um, um, beginning of, of uh, the 1900s through, I think, 19, 1980s. He was a pastor over in London during World War II, during the Korean War, during, during all of the craziness that was going on. And he says this, 
everything that is happening in this century, remember World War I, World War II, Korean War, all the, the dictators and the death that they brought, Stalin, Mao, Hitler, everything that is happening in this century is in the same way pointing to the judgment of God upon rebellious man and announcing the final destruction of all who do not submit to him. Why do bad things happen? It's because we rebelled against God. It's because Adam and Eve took that fruit. Yes, but we would have taken the fruit. We are under the same judgment of, as humanity as Adam and Eve were. Everything points to the reality of God's judgment upon rebellious humanity. Man, woman, young, old. And if this is true, then every child of God has to speak and live out the truth that saves us from this judgment, right? It, we could wallow again in, in the sorrows and the misery and the horribleness of this world, but as God's people, it should drive us to God, to His salvation, to the truth which is shown through His judgment upon His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Now, we need to think about this. Like the Philistines... Satan thought that he won when he placed Jesus on that cross. He thought that he had defeated God, that it was his power which won the day. But also like the Philistines, it was God who allowed Satan to win the day, even if it was only for a moment. It was a sovereign plan of God to crucify his own son upon the cross, allowing the enemy of him and his people to succeed for a day. Hear that again. God allowed Satan to kill his son. He brought his judgment for our rebellion against his own son. We as sinners rebelled against God, and God took that rebellion and placed it on his own son, and his son willingly took it upon himself. Not because God is a divine child abuser. <laughs> that's, that's not how God works. But because he is a merciful, loving, and grace-filled God. He became sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. God judged his own son. His son didn't deserve it. He was perfect. But he put the judgment upon his son that was deserved for us because of our rebellion against him. He put it on his son. And because of that, because of his allowing the enemy, Satan, to win for a day, saved God's people for all of eternity. Do we see that? We like to speak of God and loving and mercy and he's never evil and he would never do that to his son. If he did not do that to his son, we would all be in hell for all eternity. 
And Jesus, if he did not willingly take upon that judgment of the wrath of God for what we did, if he didn't bring that upon himself willingly, we would all be in hell for all eternity. But because he allowed the enemy to win for a day, we as his people are saved for all time. How do we live and understand and the reality of God's character in our lives as his people? I think Martin, jo- Martin Lloyd-Jones' words are a wake-up call for us. As we see the heavy hand of God upon the world today or upon ourselves for our sin, even as his people, we can easily become depressed, discouraged, distracted, exhausted, worn out, fearful, anxiety, uh, anxious. I mean, what else? We just throw another adjective. It's adjective, right? Isn't that the right word? Forgetting that we serve the one true God whose sovereign power and authority is over all things. Satan loves it when we're distracted. It does not change the fact. It does not change the fact that this world is messed up. And that tomorrow we may face the greatest crisis in our life. It doesn't mean that the hard things of our life or what's going on and all the division and all the wars and all the death and all the pain of this world doesn't hurt. It doesn't mean any of that. What it means is that we believe in the one true God who is living and active, who is around, and he's causing and allowing all things to happen in this world. And so we can be rest assured as his people of his power. We may not simply learn about the character of God. My hope is that we would joyfully submit to him as his people. That we would hear these words and not go, man, God is, he's just mean. He's a cranky old man. He's not. He is a holy God who demands perfection of obedience, knows that his people can't do it, and so he does it himself and takes the judgment for our sins upon himself. As his people, when we experience the judgment of God, small or big, for our sinful rebellion against him daily, May we remember who our God is and remember that it wasn't just like one sin of mine that was placed upon Christ on the cross. It was all of my sins, past, present, and future. They were all laid on him. They were all forgiven. And if I believe and if I confess And if I submit to the Lord, I'm saved. I'm saved. We believe in a living and true God. We believe in a powerful and sovereign God. And we believe that he is using even his judgment upon us and upon this world, upon every Every time we read of his judgment in Scripture, 
It is pointing us to Him, the only one who saves. Are you a believer? Praise God. Praise God. Remember this when you see the heavy hand of God. And if you're an unbeliever and you're feeling the heavy hand of God upon you, do not be like the Philistines and ignore the power of God, but run to Him. Don't run to your false gods. They're dead. Run to the one and only living God who saves through His Son. Believe, confess, and you will be saved, it says. Father, I pray that you would help us to live this out as always. Uh, but God, to understand and to know your, your hand, your heavy hand of judgment upon this world, upon us, for our rebellion, for this world's rebellion. Father, you are a holy and a perfect and a good God. And as we read these words, may we not get distracted by the judgment But may, Father, these words drive us back to you and the salvation that you give to your Son. As your people, may we bask, bask in the presence of Jesus, our Redeemer, the one who paid the price for our sins, and glorify you for allowing the enemy to win for a day so that we might be with you for all eternity. You are our God. You are the only God May we as your people reflect that truth to the world around us, Father. And may we not lose sight of who we are in you and what you, what you demand of us as your people, Father. Correct us, discipline us, judge us, but remind us always, Father, that if we are saved, we will be with you forever. You are our good God, and may you be given the glory, even in the midst of pain and suffering, we ask this in your name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing our final song?